the riot was a terrible thing. The people were just running. They didn't have any homes to go to because the white people burned all the homes down, the businesses and everything on Greenwood. But the members here in Tulsa came back and built it to what you see now today. Because Greenwood was a very, very outstanding little town. They had lots of killing here, however, on Greenwood. And when Mama first started bringing us up here before we moved, the uh, porter would say when he got to Archer and Greenwood, all out for Tushhog Town, Greenwood Street to battling ground. And that was on everybody's mind then. But they built back, and then after they started the urban renewal thing, they started moving us out again. That's why you don't see any toast anymore like it was at that time. All I, all the, there was nothing familiar over on that part of town but a one block on Greenwood and the Mount Zion Baptist Church. They burned that church down to the ground and Vernon too. I'm a, me and my pastor at that time was Reverend C.R. Tucker. He left with the people running from the riot and he never came back to Vernon anymore. I've forgotten just who came in his stead. In partnership with the Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission, I'm Nia Clark, and this is Black Wall Street, 1921. You just heard from Tulsa Race Massacre survivor Eunice Jackson. We heard from her much earlier in this podcast as she described her experience in the attack on Greenwood. Jackson was talking about the impact that urban renewal has had on Greenwood. More on that shortly. Now, according to a February 2003 Tulsa World article that was updated in May of 2020 this year called Greenwood, the street that had it all. Jackson, who was born Eunice Cloman, arrived in Tulsa in 1917 at the age of 14. She says her family moved here so she and her sister could go to school nine months out of the year instead of four months. Her family's home survived the 1921 massacre. Several years later, she married Samuel Jack Jackson, an undertaker. At the time, working as a funeral home director was among one of the most lucrative fields available to African-Americans. On May 31st and June 1st of 2020, this year, the year this podcast was created, the nation recognized the 99th anniversary of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. In the 99 years since the massacre, Tulsa has undergone a considerable slow transformation. I mentioned previously in this podcast that Tulsa experienced a sort of regeneration between the 1920s and the 1950s. That, however, did not last. When legal segregation began to be dismantled in the 1950s and continued through the 1960s, Blacks in Greenwood began to spend more and more of their dollars outside of the community because, well, they could. This newly acquired freedom to choose how and where they spent their dollars brought with it opportunity. Many of these dollars flowed into white-owned businesses that Blacks had virtually been shut out of prior to this national shift in policy. There was also a downside to this. 
Remember, segregation limited blacks from spending their dollars freely. As a result, African-Americans in North Tulsa, or Greenwood, created an insular economy in which blacks mostly patronized black businesses as well as black entrepreneurs and rarely had to travel outside of their community to patronize white-owned businesses that shunned them due to the color of their skin. However, desegregation eliminated the need for Greenwood's self-sufficient closed economy. Smaller black business owners often could not compete with more established white-owned businesses. Thus began Greenwood's economic decline. This was exacerbated by several other factors, including redlining, the unethical practice that ensures residents of certain areas are denied services based on their race or ethnicity. Examples include the denial of mortgage loans, insurance, and other financial services. This often occurs in minority communities. According to an article by the Human Rights Watch called The Case for Reparations in Tulsa, Oklahoma, quote, As a part of President Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal, the Homeowners Loan Corporation, or HOLC, established in 1933, embarked on a city survey program using data from mortgage lenders and real estate developers to investigate real estate conditions and assess desirability of neighborhoods. The program resulted in a series of color-coded maps in 239 cities, including Tulsa, Oklahoma. Neighborhoods were graded with one of four categories, from green, the best, to red, hazardous. Local mortgage companies deemed, quote, redlined areas comprised of mostly low-income minorities to be credit risks, making it impossible for many residents to access mortgage loans, furthering the homeownership and wealth gap, end quote. The study goes on to say, quote, 35% of Tulsa, including parts of the historic Greenwood District and surrounding areas, was deemed hazardous by the HOLC, while the 1968 Fair Chance at Housing Act outlawed redlining and other racially discriminatory housing practices, the effects of that racial and economic segregation persist today. A 2018 study shows that most of the neighborhoods that the HOLC marked as, quote, hazardous between 1935 and 1939 are low-income and minority neighborhoods today. A recent strategy documented by the city of Tulsa recognizes that, quote, historical actions including redlining and exclusionary zoning have led to disinvestment in neighborhoods that were once thriving in Tulsa, end quote. Additionally, a 2018 analysis of publicly available data under the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act found that Black Tulsans were 2.4 times more likely to be denied home mortgage applications than white applicants in Tulsa, end quote. This economic stress was further compounded by urban renewal, a set of federally financed policies aimed at developing areas of a city plagued by economic decline by rehabilitating or replacing housing and other dilapidated buildings, parks, roadways, etc. Ask residents of Greenwood and many may tell you that these policies did more harm than good. With much of the community's commercial success gone, coupled with urban renewal that resulted in buildings being torn down, not to mention a highway that was built right through the center of the area, these policies all but erased what was left of the Greenwood of yesteryear. According to the same article, quote, By the early 1970s, these policies had claimed and demolished so many businesses and homes in Tulsa, more than 1,000, many of them in Greenwood, that Black Tulsans would come to call urban renewal, quote, urban removal, according to Hirsch. This led Black Tulsans to move north, east, and west, but with few exceptions, not to the more prosperous neighborhoods, 
south of the railroad tracks, end quote. All of these factors further repressed the memories of the massacre, much of which had already been suppressed for decades. As a result, children born in Greenwood in the 1970s never learned about the history of their community, about their neighborhood's rich heritage, about the heyday of Black Wall Street, and the tenacity of the people who lived there. One part of North Tulsa that works to keep this history alive is the Greenwood Cultural Center, which was dedicated on October 22, 1992. The center was created as a tribute to the community's history, as well as a symbol of hope. It includes a museum and a banquet hall. The Greenwood Cultural Center sponsors and promotes education and cultural events aimed at preserving the community's heritage, including the more positive aspects of North Tulsa, as well as its history. As you're about to hear, Executive Director Michelle Brown says sharing this history, not only with tourists, but also African-American Tulsans who may have little knowledge of who their forefathers were, can go a long way to helping them realize how much they're capable of as well. Michelle Brown, you are the program coordinator of the Greenwood Cultural Center. Tell me a little bit about the Greenwood Cultural Center and how it came to be. So the Greenwood Cultural Center is a nonprofit organization in Tulsa. Our mission in part is to preserve African-American heritage and promote positive images of the African-American community to provide intercultural exchange and educational and cultural experiences and also to facilitate cultural tourism. The concept for the Greenwood Cultural Center came about back in the early 1970s during a model city community meeting where the community was asked what they wanted to have in their community, what they needed. And what they said was that they wanted a place where our children could come together and learn about various forms of the arts, experience various forms of the arts, and also learn about their history. And obviously, the Greenwood Cultural Center is located in the Greenwood District of Tulsa. What is the significance of a center like this for a place like Greenwood, given its history? Well, we are housed in the historic Greenwood District. And prior to the Greenwood Cultural Center, there wasn't any facilities, I would say, in the state of Oklahoma that recognized the history of Black Wall Street and the history of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. So the founders definitely wanted to make sure that that part of history was recognized and that that story was told. But North Tulsa, which is predominantly African-American, and it lacks many of the things that you would find in other communities. So there aren't any theaters. There are only one or two, maybe three community centers. So that was a really need, definitely in the early 1970s, to have a place that was dedicated to telling our story and recognizing our history, because at the time, no one was doing that. And so in the 1970s, that's several decades after Black Wall Street had experienced its sort of rebirth following the Tulsa Race Massacre, when the community came together and rebuilt Greenwood or Black Wall Street. And it was even more prosperous than it was before the attack. And then you had the slow economic downturn as folks started to leave Greenwood and spend their dollars elsewhere. Absolutely. So how does the Greenwood Cultural Center help tell the story of the Tulsa Race Massacre, especially given that the story was suppressed 
for so many years. Yes. So we began our work back in 1995. It's when we had our official grand opening. And during that time, one of our founders, retired state representative Don Ross, who was serving in the state legislature at the time, helped to form the Tulsa Race Riot Commission, as it was called at the time, to study the events of the massacre. Because what we knew was widely based on oral histories. And so we began to get a nationwide attention and just took on the responsibility of serving as a liaison for the survivors, gathering information, documents, gathering the survivors' stories, and creating exhibits that share that history, share the photographs, those images that we were able to locate um, and continue to house exhibits that tell the story. There's not a lot of information of the Greenwood District prior to the massacre. So our exhibit for the most part begins with a little of the history of the Greenwood District. There are a few photos of Greenwood prior to the massacre that shows Black-owned businesses lining the streets of Greenwood. And then there's quite a few images of the massacre itself. And then we covered the rebuilding that took place. And it had actually been completed by 1925. They completely rebuilt the Greenwood District. Everyone was committed to helping their brothers and sisters, their neighbors. One of our survivors, when we asked him how they were able to build Black Wall Street, he said that everyone was making money. Everyone was committed to helping one another. So he said, you know, when one person would get their business up and off the ground, they would grab the hand of their brother and sister and pull them up alongside them. They believed that every individual had a God-given talent that they could use to generate wealth. So the women were hairdressers and they were seamstresses and they ironed and they had restaurants. I mean, everyone according to our survivors, was making money. And they may not have had a storefront or an actual business, but they were working and making money. That must be amazing because for so long, so many people, whether they were survivors or descendants of survivors or descendants of perpetrators of the attack, so many people just did not talk about this. So in speaking with our survivors, when we asked them why they didn't share this history with their children and grandchildren, what they said was that to tell the story meant that they had to relive it. And it was simply too painful to relive over and over again. They decided following the massacre, almost as a community where there were more churches in North Tulsa than all of Tulsa combined, where they had a strong foundation in their faith and their religious beliefs, they decided that they would simply put this into God's hands and move forward and focus on surviving, focus on rebuilding. And that's exactly what they did. And that speaks to their courage and determination and their resilience that they were able to carry that weight for decades um, and not share their story. The city of Tulsa wanted to minimize and downplay what had taken place because here we are in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the Bible Belt of America, the former oil capital of the world. And Tulsa did not want to be known as the place where our nation's worst race massacre had occurred. That's got to be pretty traumatic, right? To keep inside for so long. Absolutely. And we are just beginning to have 
conversations in our community about historical trauma. It's a relatively new term and something that we are just beginning to recognize and to discuss. Those survivors definitely experienced the trauma from the massacre that they carried with that. And the the downside, the con of that is that they had children and grandchildren that didn't know about their history. And the survivors spoke of being a proud people, being savvy business owners, being well-educated, having a sense of community spirit and community pride and a love for one another. And those ideals, that legacy was not passed to their grandchildren, their children and grandchildren. So what we were taught in school in North Tulsa, where we had Black educators and we had Black history classes, we never discussed Black Wall Street. And so what we were taught about African-American history was slavery and the civil rights movement, stories about African-Americans being beat down, being abused, being discarded, being disrespected. That was our Black history story. So to keep that from generations, an entire generation of African-Americans, it in a way kept us from truly understanding and knowing who we are as a people and where we come from. I would argue, or maybe I'll ask, do you think it also kept a lot of people in Tulsa from being able to realize their potential because they didn't know how much their forefathers and mothers had accomplished? And by that time, Tulsa had been in economic decline. So some people may have just sort of accepted the way things were, not realizing that they come from a long line of very strong people who knew how to make a lot with a very little. Absolutely. I think you are absolutely right that while our forefathers laid a foundation for us, we were totally unaware of that. And so I think that it crippled their descendants. I think that it robbed them of this sense of pride that they would have had had they known about their parents' and grandparents' history as successful, very wealthy business owners. And it also, I think, hurt the survivors in that they were not able to pursue reparations. They weren't able to fight for reparations effectively. The lawsuit that survivors filed under the direction of Johnny Cochran, their case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, but it, they were told that it would not be heard because their two-year statute of limitations had passed in 1923. Every single one of the insurance claims that they filed following the massacre in 1921, totaling more than $2.7 million, was denied because it did not contain a riot clause. And had they not hid the story, buried the story, had they not decided to focus on rebuilding and as opposed to perhaps fighting and filing cases in 1921, in 1922, perhaps they would have had uh, a different result. But here nearly a hundred years later, we are still discussing reparations, but there's no real hope for reparations at this point. Ooh, that's heavy. That's really heavy. What's your history with regards to Tulsa? Were you born and raised in Tulsa? Is your family from Tulsa? So I was born and raised in Tulsa. My mother is from a border town called Yuma, Arizona. She moved here in 1970, where my father is from here. 
And when she came here in 1970, she worked for an elderly white man who on his deathbed rambled on about the fires, the gunshots, the smoke, the burning. And she asked her in-laws, what was he talking about? What happened here in Tulsa? And they said, look, we don't talk about that around here. And don't go asking anybody about it. And she never mentioned it again. And I, as a little girl, overheard that conversation and didn't really understand what I was hearing until I came here in 1995 and took a tour of the exhibits myself and learned about the history in its entirety. And then I thought about the conversation that my mother had. And at that time, people were still reluctant to talk about it. They didn't want to discuss it. And they were still afraid. All those years later, that elderly white man was carrying that with him. We don't know what his role in the massacre was, but whatever it was, it was really heavy and heavy enough that he carried it to his deathbed. Yes. And the Greenwood Cultural Center represents the beginning of these efforts to bring that story out of the shadows of history and tell it wholly and truthfully. And I wonder, how do you think Greenwood is accomplishing that? Is the community living up to that task? How do you think the city of Tulsa, even as a whole, is contributing to that great responsibility? You know what? Honestly, for a couple of decades now, there hasn't been a lot of interest in telling the story. Now, as we approach the commemoration, there are more entities and organizations that are wanting to be a part of telling uh, this story. And so we have a lot of work to do in terms of telling this story and telling it completely, telling it in a way that is respectful to the African-American community and to its survivors. We know that the 1921 Tulsa race Massacre Centennial Commission is planning to build a Greenwood History Center on our grounds, which will tell the story with much more interactive exhibits. I think they are currently raising $25 million to complete that facility. So there is more effort and attention being given as we approach the commemoration. My hope is that following the commemoration after 2021, that people are still motivated and committed to telling the story and investing money into telling the story, creating exhibits, curriculums, and so forth. And, you know, it's up to us to do our our research and to discover our history because we are, typically, we are not writing the textbooks and deciding what history is included in those textbooks and taught in the classroom. In terms of the racial dynamic between the people of Tulsa, Black, White, Native American, other Latino, Hispanic, what is it like in 2020 compared to several decades ago? You know, I would say that I don't think much has changed. I think that the political climate that we are in now allows people to be more vocal about how they feel. They're more likely to exhibit their racist tendencies. They feel that we live in a society currently where it's almost as if we've been backwards. You know, people are much more insensitive. We, we see racism seeming to rear its ugly head again in a way that I hadn't seen or witnessed in 
in my lifetime. And it's much more evident online on social media. People feel bold and are able to hide behind their social media accounts and make these comments. But it's eye-opening to read some of the comments after an article, say, in the Tulsa world, where we are talking about the mass graves investigation. And the comments that follow by Tulsa citizens, it is just disheartening to read and hear and see that people still feel that way. It, it, it seems that we still have a long ways to go and we have a lot of work to do. And Tulsa is still very divided, somewhat still very segregated. Because we're talking about unity, we're talking about division, we're talking about what happens when division breeds hate, breeds violence, breeds death. And if we're going back in time, then we're almost bound to repeat the mistakes of our past. Absolutely. And we see this racism today that is more systemic. So Oklahoma ranks number one in its incarceration of women. We rank at the bottom for education and healthcare. And what we see a lot of racism that is systemic and exhibits itself in our education system, for example. We do have many people that visit the Greenwood Cultural Center from not only around the country, but from around the world. And one of the things that we hear quite often is, it is so racist here. Uh, I think in some ways we have become accustomed to it. We have become desensitized, but many people that visit say, oh my God, this is one of the most racist places that I've ever been. Someone was visiting and spoke of being in a restaurant in downtown Tulsa and being the only African-American there and that he felt so uncomfortable because people were just staring at him. And we hear stories like that much too often. What is your hope for Greenwood? What is your hope for the Greenwood Cultural Center? What is your hope for the Greenwood community for the city of Tulsa in terms of being able to acknowledge this, this dark stain on the city's history and somehow learning from it? Yeah, I think the city of Tulsa has acknowledged that this took place. And I think that we have to have a real conversation about reparations. There's a lot of conversation, a lot of talk around reconciliation by Blacks and whites. This effort to move towards reconciliation as we approach the 100-year anniversary. And many people are intent on creating this image for people outside of Tulsa that they expect to visit. They want to create this image that we have grown, that we are coming together, that we have reconciled our differences. And that simply isn't the truth. We truly cannot have a conversation about reconciliation until we have discussed reparations and what that could look like for our community. And, you know, honestly, we don't want someone coming into the Greenwood District or into the North Tulsa community offering us what they think we deserve or what they think we're entitled to. They should have a conversation with us and ask us, what do we feel is deserved? What does reparations look like for us? So I'd like to see the city of Tulsa step up to the plate, committed to investing its resources into redeveloping the Greenwood District and investing in North Tulsa. My hope for the Greenwood Cultural Center is that we would remain independent and continue to tell this story 
in a way that based on the history of the survivors' testimonies, their oral histories, I'm hoping that we are here for another 20, 30 years continuing to tell the story because I truly believe that post commemoration, many people are going to turn their attention to other issues, other items, you know, and so they will lose interest in the story of Black Wall Street and, and the massacre. And we'll feel that, oh, we've made a hundred years, now we can move on to something else. We really can't move on to something else because you have a community here that continues to suffer. You have descendants that lost the generational wealth that could have been passed down to them. You have descendants and, and their children and grandchildren who still know very little about this history. I did a presentation in Oklahoma City at a church and there was someone in the audience from Tulsa that said that they moved to Oklahoma City a few years ago, but they had never heard about this in Tulsa. We hear that all too often people across the country, but here in Oklahoma that say, I really don't know anything about. So that tells you that we have a lot of work to do. I just want people to know that we make this history available. So we want people to know that we are here, we are telling the story, and if they are interested in learning more, as parents and grandparents, we have to make sure that our children and future generations know this history. That's one of the things that our survivors said they wanted even more than reparations. They wanted for their children and grandchildren to know that there's more to Black history than slavery and the civil rights movement. They wanted them to know that they were well-educated, they were savvy business owners. They want them to know that history of Black Wall Street. And so many educators, however, refuse to teach this history still in Oklahoma, across the country. So it's up to us to make sure that this history is being taught in our school systems so that our children have a better understanding of who they are, where they come from, and of their potential. If the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre never occurred, would Black Tulsans have been in a better position financially to deal with the changing economic tides of the early to mid-20th century, particularly during desegregation and the introduction of redlining and urban renewal? After all, many Black survivors of the massacre, even those who were able to rebuild, had to start from scratch after the attack. If that wasn't the case, and African-American Tulsans had the financial cushion of the assets many had prior to the massacre to fall back on when financial hardship hit, would they have been better able to weather those storms? And would those who decided to remain in Tulsa have been in a better position to invest even more in their community, which we know is key to economic development? In other words, even if the demise of Black Wall Street's insular economy was as inevitable as Black Americans' push for equality that spawned the civil rights movement, would all of it have done as much damage if Black Wall Street was never burned to the ground and hundreds of its inhabitants slaughtered? These are questions we may never be able to answer. What is evident is how much of the disadvantage present-day Greenwood, or North Tulsa, is at in part because of the long-term ramifications the destruction of the community caused. A community which barely resembles Black Wall Street when it flourished decades ago. A Harvard Gazette article released in June of 2020 called The 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre and the Financial Fallout analyzes the long-term impact of that destruction on the Greenwood District. It points to several peer-reviewed articles, among only a few of its kind, that analyze some of the economic fallout. 
They estimate that property damage alone from the massacre is north of $200 million in today's dollars. Researchers also associate the massacre with stifling Black innovation, and they point to the challenges that currently exist with regards to reconciling the past with the economic needs of today. Earlier in the podcast, we covered the fact that not one perpetrator of the massacre was held to account for their role in the attack on Greenwood, and that the victims of the massacre never received compensation for their losses, not from insurance companies and not from the city of Tulsa. After a years-long push for reparations, in 2005, the U.S. Supreme Court decided not to hear a case seeking reparations for survivors and descendants of the massacre. This was after lower courts ruled that the statute of limitations had expired. The following is from an October 2018 article published in the American Journal of Economics and Sociology called The Destruction of Black Wall Street, Tulsa's 1921 Riot, and the Eradication of Accumulated Wealth. Quote, The failure to provide reparations did not simply affect the direct victims of collective white violence, end quote, the authors write. Quote, it was part of a larger pattern that deprived later generations of African Americans of household assets and conveyed an implicit message that white violence would either be condoned or tolerated. That is the legacy that now demands a response, end quote. Authors of that article include Chris Messer, Thomas Shriver, and Allison Adams. Another article titled Violence and Economic Activity, Evidence from African-American Patents, 1870 to 1940, was authored by Michigan State University economist Lisa Cook and published in the Journal of Economic Growth in May of 2014. Cook analyzed how lynchings and other race-based violence suppressed the ability of Black investors of the time from obtaining patents and being able to capitalize from their inventions. Cook tallied 38 riots, including the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, which led to serious loss of life and property. She found, quote, the effects of violence on Black economic activity would have been both direct. For example, Black inventors' workshops were located in affected business districts and indirect. For example, riots lower the value of commercial and residential property, which would reduce financing opportunities and increase operating costs, end quote. She also tallied nearly 300 state laws that promoted segregation and decreased access to patenting institutions and white patent attorneys, along with more than 2,700 lynchings of Black victims and nearly 300 lynchings of white victims during the period study. Quote, in addition to killing the victim, often a secondary objective was the externality of a lynching produced to intimidate the victim's family, community, or ethnic or racial group. End quote. Cook writes, quote, a lynching signaled that the personal security, and with it the freedom to work and innovate, was not guaranteed. End quote. These factors, taken together with Greenwood's economic decline, redlining, and urban renewal, has left some, not all, but some of the community in a state of economic disrepair. And it is a far cry from the thriving business center that it was many decades ago. The city is still very much segregated with North Tulsa consisting mostly of Blacks, while mostly Whites still live in the more affluent South Tulsa. The lack of opportunities for upward mobility many Black Tulsans currently face are common wherever institutional racism is present. In Tulsa, its presence means that many Black Tulsans living in Greenwood today experience a far lower quality of life and fewer opportunities, one being the opportunity to own a home. One of the more acute areas of economic disparity in Tulsa is Black homeownership. 
Though, to be clear, the problem is not unique to Tulsa. According to an August 2019 article published by the National Realtors Association titled Homeownership and the American Economy, the Black homeownership rate in the U.S. is lower than it was in 1968 when the Fair Housing Act, part of the Civil Rights Act, was signed into law. Additionally, Blacks with college degrees have lower homeownership rates than whites who do not have a high school degree. The author, Ben Zito, notes that homeownership for all races was actually growing from the 1990s into the 2000s, before the recession, which ultimately dealt a major blow to the housing market. African Americans are often disproportionately impacted by times of economic instability. We see this disparity very clearly in Tulsa, part of which can be attributed to the institutional racism as well as the harmful policies we've been discussing in this episode, along with the loss of generational wealth and barriers to upward mobility. A 2017 Tulsa World article called Report African Americans Homeownership Lagging Behind White Counterparts notes that while the nation's home ownership has stabilized since the 2008 recession, African Americans are not part of the national rebound. Quote, the gap between white and African American home ownership is at its largest since the 1940s, 29.7 percentage points. This national disparity of black home ownership virtually mirrors the disparity in home ownership we see in Tulsa today. The aforementioned Tulsa World article cites an Associated Press study analyzing a few different data sets, including Metropolitan Statistical Areas, or MSAs, in order to identify trends in Black homeownership over time. In the Tulsa MSA in 2015, the disparity between white homeownership, 69.3%, and African American homeownership, 40%, was about 30 percentage points. The 2005 percentages were 73.4 and 42.1, respectively. While a number of factors impact homeownership for Blacks in Tulsa, David Charney, owner of Capital Homes, which has built more than a thousand homes in the Tulsa area, told the Tulsa World that the barriers to home ownership for African Americans goes back generations. Quote, it was more difficult historically for Black families to access the credit markets. End quote, Charney says. Quote, Historically, there were restrictive covenants that prevented Black ownership in certain neighborhoods. Those were two things that may have led to an inability to enter the home buying process, end quote. Couple that with redlining and urban renewal, and it's easy to see why Black home ownership is at such a low level. Next, you're going to hear from a man who describes himself as once complicit in the institutionalized racism that plagues Tulsa and some of America today but has recently devoted much of his time to trying to learn all he can about Tulsa's history. In doing so, he wants to help right the wrongs of the city's past, starting with increasing Black home ownership in Greenwood. I'm Greg Taylor, and I am a builder grew up in the building business, but I've also been for 30 years a pastor and a missionary in Uganda and have lived the last 15 years in the Tulsa, Oklahoma area. I understand you're also getting your doctoral degree and you want to explain sort of what that entails? I'm getting my doctorate from Phillips Theological Seminary and it's uh, in pastoral leadership. The topic is on uh, the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre 
And I'm looking at that historical event, but looking at how white people see that event historically and how they saw it at the time. So I'm looking at, for example, sermons in white churches after the event. I've researched the Red Cross report. In fact, the Red Cross report is the source where we find that there were an estimated 300 lives taken at the massacre. And so what I'm trying to do is then extrapolate and ask how do those events of the race massacre in Tulsa continue to be internalized, in particular white Tulsans like myself? This is, I hope not too personal, but you knew about the Tulsa race massacre before you began your your degree at your seminary institution, correct? I knew about it, but like most Oklahomans, it was not in the history books. I grew up in Oklahoma and we weren't taught about it. And some people claim that they were, but for the most part, it just wasn't in the history books and is only going to be recently added in some real way into the history books. And so I knew very broad strokes about the race massacre before starting the research. And then when I came to this vision last last year in 2019 to build homes, and then COVID came along, and then other uh, factors in my church just led to time to step down. After 15 years with the church, I really wanted to pass on the ministry to younger generation. And so it was several factors, but it was mostly that I had something good that I wanted to do in, in building homes in North Tulsa, because I've seen the need there for a long, long time. And housing is one of those things that has not been a consistently upward moving trend in North Tulsa that I wanted to to do something to spark. I want to talk about the issue of faith here, because we keep seeing this thread of faith throughout this story, throughout this history. You're a man of Christian faith. You have been for many years. You were a minister for many years. And we also know a lot of Black Tulsans during the massacre, before, during, and after. Many of them were also quite religious or spiritual. So I guess I'm wondering, in your research, your thesis to look at how white people have responded to the Tulsa Race Massacre, how does faith fit in there? How do people of faith, both black and white, fit into your research about the overall perception of the race massacre with regards to white people of the Christian faith? Yeah, that's a very fascinating angle and a good question. The part of my research is to look about how white churches responded the Sunday after the race massacre. Part of my research was to dive into a particular sermon that was preached in a church, in a Methodist church by a pastor named Muzan. Now, there's a, that pastor preached and used language that was separate but not equal. He referred to Greenwood as Little Africa. He blamed the massacre, blamed the riots on a few bad apples. I don't know if he used the word bad apples, but it was bad actors. But the same concept that's used as a racist trope today. He also blamed the victims themselves. He blamed the bad behavior of those black Tulsans who themselves were the victims of 
10,000 black individuals and families that were made homeless. So it's a really difficult thing to read. It's a document that you have to take into account was in 1921. But at the same time, what I'm looking at is parallels to those racist tropes and those kinds of deeply embedded white supremacies that come out in white theology. And so that's the biggest connection in in my research to Christian faith or to religious faith is how does how we view God impact how we treat other people? And one example of that is that a black theologian named James Cone, who said that white theology reads the Bible as a conquering document. And a theologian named Jim Perkison would say that the white eyes have been trained by reading the Bible that way as being able to conquer and survey and rank and take and pillage anything that we see. And so doing hard work about deconstructing that kind of theology is what I'm doing. And it's hard. I mean, it's difficult to talk about. In fact, I would say one more thing about the sermon I mentioned earlier. Muzan quoted another preacher or theologian and said that the difference in the superiority in race was written by God in indelible ink. And so even in 1921, there was still a view after hundreds of years, after slavery even, there was still a view of essentialism, that there was an essential difference of race. And even though that was eventually over the decades, there was a reckoning with that in America. There were the civil rights laws that we all know. And even though that idea of essentialism has been put down and no one would say that it still is built into the way white people see the world and it has to be undone. Did any of that factor into your decision to step down from your church and sort of chart a new course for yourself using your perhaps religion and spirituality as a guide? Yeah, I did. It it had a lot to do with me stepping down and, and deciding to do this work in more concrete ways. It stems back to that decision four years before whenever I said, I have to do things that are more about action than just talk. And that's where my faith really meets a practice. So what do you plan to do with your degree since you're not preaching anymore? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, the work that I am going into, the, this research will be vital to a, a deeper understanding of race relationships in Tulsa. Now, you recently had some personal things you had to reconcile with, I guess, with regard to you know, yourself and, you know, the history of Tulsa and racism that has occurred there and obviously the Tulsa race massacre. First, tell me what happened exactly. And then how did that experience change your life? Yeah, I'll go back a few years. And in 2016, and a lot of us were going through a period when social media and the opinions that were being given were polarizing. I became frustrated with that, as many people did. And I decided that I would only do something, I would only speak about something or comment if I was doing something real in the city. 
I started going to events. I went to a MLK parade with a friend. I saw some signs there that said, love your Hindu neighbor, love your LGBTQ neighbor. Those signs were being held by a seminary. And so I decided to join that seminary, Phillips Theological Seminary, and start my doctorate. And then that led to doing the research on the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. And so over the past two years, as I've done that research, and I've also become active in a group called Action, which is Allied Communities of Tulsa Inspiring Our Neighborhoods, we started to do work around things like criminal justice reform. Oklahoma is the worst incarcerator, not just in the nation, but in the world, because the U.S. incarcerates more people than anywhere else in the world. And Oklahoma incarcerates more women than anywhere else in the United States. And we have an incarceration rate that is the highest. Recently, our governor has commuted some sentences and maybe made us the the second highest, but we're still close to Louisiana in incarceration. So our group is trying to reduce incarceration by 50% over the, the next 10 years. Well, in doing that kind of work, I started in reading books like Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy, Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility, Ibram Kendi's Stamped from the Beginning, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Books like that were, were awakening me. And then studying the race massacre, it was really a life-changing experience to see these things about incarceration, all of these things together to see the magnitude of the suffering of Black people in America in the last 400 years and then in recent years. And then to realize that I, as a white person, am part of a heritage that has caused that suffering. What am I supposed to do with that? Am I supposed to just, like a lot of white people that I was interviewing in my research, say that I'm innocent? Well, James Baldwin says, you know, white people have to get over the the sense of being innocent. And I think that's a very important point that he makes. And that was in around that same time in 2017, I believe. So I started to think about what I needed to do. And in all of those understandings of of history, as I was just coming to understand the magnitude of the the suffering that was caused, I thought, what could, could I do as a white person? And so I started looking at North Tulsa, which is it still bears a lot of the scars of the Tulsa race massacre a hundred years later. There was a rebuilding of Greenwood. There's as your podcast so excellently lays out how Greenwood revived in the 1930s and forties and rebuilt, but there were other factors that came in and economic factors. And, and between then and now, the city has not provided the kind of resources, has not shared those kind of resources as it has in other parts of the city. And so I have started a conversation with city councilors and the mayor's office and the Greenwood community, two different chambers of commerce in the Greenwood area with Black Tulsans for an organization that we're calling the 1256 Movement. And 1256 was the exact number in the race riot massacre report of 2001 is what they call it. It's now referred to as a massacre. The number of homes that were destroyed were 1,256, along with 300 people killed, 10,000 people left homeless. And so the idea is to rebuild homes uh, that were burned down. 
And in the next 10 years, our plan is to build homes for 1,256 Black families in Tulsa. Certainly an admirable goal, but it also sounds really difficult. And I wonder, how are you going to do that? And who are you going to get to help you do that? Yeah, that's a great question. It really seems like an overblown kind of goal in some ways to myself whenever I say it. It's a lot of homes, a lot of families. It's a big goal. It's a city-sized goal. I would say because of my Christian faith that it's a God-sized goal, but it's also fraught with a lot of problems and complexities that are important to name. And one of those is gentrification. We don't want it to become a plan that is an opening for white people to get land. This is not my intention. In fact, my one of my requests to the city is to donate as reparations land to home buyers, and then that would be a piece that the city could pay in reparations. We we'll call it economic reparations because we've been waiting for a hundred years on government to pay reparations. And so there's a lot to do in banking as well. We are confronting redlining in banks and calling on banks to do work in the North Tulsa area where they have been more than just shy. They have intentionally avoided North Tulsa in development. And you can really see that in terms of business and homes on the north side. So there's a lot of work to do. The only way we're going to be able to do it is as a city, as a collective. This is a movement. We're inviting realtors, builders, bankers, ordinary citizens, donors of land and cash to get involved. When you say we, that's your family's construction company. And then who else consists of the we? Yeah, that's a good question. When I say we, the 1256 movement is an open-ended coalition or collective of people who include people that are stakeholders in North Tulsa, in Greenwood. So I'm talking with mainly Black-owned businesses, realtors, bankers, builders that are involved with this project, with this venture. And so I use the the we because I can't do it myself. This is not intended to be something I do myself. Can you just explain what you think the benefit would be for African-Americans in Greenwood, in North Tulsa, with regards to the local economy and also just economic empowerment? I wanted to name one more just problem before going to your question there, and that is the issue of predatory lenders. This is an issue that was raised by an author, Kyunga Yamada Taylor, a race for profits. And naming the problem of in the 1960s and 70s after the civil rights movement, there was a move toward housing in urban areas and homeownership, but there were predatory lenders and it was a disaster. And so her book describes and tells the history of that. So I'm very aware of those kind of issues that we don't want that to be the situation. We want to really be careful about the lenders that we we are choosing. Ones right. And we also know them. that during the Great Recession of t- 2008, predatory lending had a lot to do with a lot of the foreclosures, particularly massive amounts of people of color whose homes were foreclosed upon because they were victims of predatory lending. Yeah. So it's a huge issue. And 
And I really don't want to be involved in any way in furthering any kind of the suffering of black family. Just want to do everything I can to be a part of helping to alleviate the suffering and and then also provide home ownership in a way where, for example, we have a first time buyer program with one of the banks called Spirit Bank so that people can, if they haven't been able to own a home yet, they can start building the those building blocks of prosperity and wealth that homeownership provides. And so we have a lot to do in discerning how to go forward. I believe that I've been complicit and silent for most of my life trying to understand things about race, but have not spoken out like I think I should. And my life change in this is that I believe that I'm meant to speak out for the rest of my life. My wife is the same way. We've we've been through a lot of experiences together and we began speaking out as pastors in our church and we'll continue doing that in this role that we're taking in building homes. I think that it's a long-term struggle. Racism was mantled over centuries and it's going to take decades, I think, to dismantle it and it's going to take white people having patience and getting on board and even if we get on the the bus late to be on board for life and be anti-racist activists. Greg Taylor mentioned the sermon of Bishop Edwin D. Muzan that was preached shortly after the Tulsa Race Massacre, which emphasized a need for morality, declared the everlasting endurance of segregation, blamed African-Americans for inciting the Tulsa Race Massacre, referred to a riot at the time, and called on his congregation to love their neighbors and practice mercy. I thought it fair to read part of that sermon to lend context to what Taylor was referring to. The following is part of the sermon Bishop Muzan preached, which was also published in a publication called The Christian Advocate on July 14, 1921, about a month and a half after the Tulsa Race Massacre. This is also online if you care to read the entire sermon yourself. The first part of the sermon comes after the subtitle, Not Social Equality, But Race Equality. Quote, We must give our colored friends to understand that there will never be anything like social equality in America, And at the same time, we must see to it that there is nothing resembling race hatred or race contempt in our hearts. Many colored leaders tell us honestly that they care nothing for social equality, but what they ask is that they may have a man's chance and a woman's chance in the world. On the other hand, many colored leaders are agitating for this one thing. One needs only to read colored newspapers and magazines to find this out. This lies at the root of the bittersweet race hatred on their part. Well, we say to them plainly, it will never be. As I once heard that brilliant writer, Bishop E.E. Haas say, quote, God Almighty has drawn the color line in indelible ink, end quote. And the more that line is respected, the better it will be for both whites and blacks. We will see to it that here in America, there are separate hotels, separate schools, and separate churches, end quote. Later in this sermon, under the subtitle, Respect for Law, Muzan writes, quote, The situation was unusual here in Tulsa. White men did not start the riot. Negroes started it. A rumor became current that a young Negro was to be taken from jail and lynched. Numbers of white men heard the rumor and gathered about the jail to see what might happen. They were without arms. 
At no time was there any evidence that a mob of white men intended to break into the jail and kill the accused Negro. The rumor that a lynching was planned reached the Negroes in, quote, Little Africa, also. According to the testimony of Negroes, the office of The Star, a Negro newspaper, was made their rallying point. Here, they assembled their arms and ammunition. Then they began to come in crowds, armed, some of them with high-powered rifles, into the city. They were in a bad mood. They refused to go home. Somehow, a shot was fired. Then the white men broke into stores and armed themselves. The city and county officials were incompetent or cowardly or both. For a time, a thousand armed Negroes had the city at their mercy. Under such circumstances, there was nothing left for white men to do but to stand for the defense of their homes and the protection of their lives until help arrived. End quote. For now, I leave you with that. The next episode will be the final episode of this series on the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. I can't believe it. And I'm so glad you were able to take this journey with me. In the next episode, we'll look at other initiatives that have been undertaken to address many of the issues we've covered in this episode. Be sure to check out our Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter pages by searching for Black Wall Street 1921. You can also check out our website, www.blackwallstreet-1921.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. 